Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we are talking about villains and villainy. We are talking about what makes an anti-hero. We are talking about Russian folklore. And we're talking about all this through the lens of Shadow and Bone, the TV show and books with special guest Becky Allen. All that and more after a commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. I'm Matthew, your host. As I said, I'm joined by Becky Allen. Becky's been a great guest on uh, our podcast about talking about ethical questions, talking about Star Wars stuff. And when I found out that they had been watching Shadow and Bone and that they were a big fan of the books as well, I was super excited to get Becky on. So, Becky, great to have you back. And uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm really excited to be talking uh, about this with you because it's a great series and the books, for anyone who hasn't read them, are so good and I have so much to say about them um but if you haven't read them the first book is Shadow and Bone uh there's a trilogy that's a very I I want to sing YA standard feels a little bit dismissive but it is sort of the best example you're going to find of a very specific kind of YA fantasy Mm -hmm. and then there's a two book duology set in the same world uh, which is Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom and they are beyond brilliant they are i cannot recommend them highly enough i really enjoyed the trilogy but the six of crows duology is some of the just the best writing and the best books that i have read in a long time so nice highly recommend and very excited to talk about them (laughs) awesome i'm so glad to have you here we're going to be primarily talking about the shadow and bone tv show Uh, i've asked becky to try not to spoil stuff that's in the books not in the show beyond that although certainly going into how what we've already seen is different than the books would be a great topic I also really appreciate that now you've taught me the word duology because I always just say two book series, which sounds super awkward. So <laughs> that alone, we already have a victory. And we're, uh, I want to quickly say that for those who haven't seen the show or haven't read the books, definitely don't feel like you've got to um, turn us off. Uh, if you, we're going to be spoiling the hell out of it. So if you want to uh, not see it, there are some great plot twists. I definitely suggest pausing. This episode will be waiting for you. You know, you can take your time watching it or you can do what my partner and I did and watch it an entire day. It's about eight hours. You know, what else are you going to do on a Saturday afternoon? Uh, I'm kidding. I hope that the world's opening. I'm going to end that entire storyline. But yeah, so you can watch it in eight hours on a Saturday the way we did or just, you know, do it at your own pace. But either way, if you want to, if you're not going to read the books or watch the show, but you still want to hear the discussion, definitely stick around. We're going to kind of start by talking about some general themes, but then we will give you kind of a plot summary just so you can kind of catch up and and be aware of what we're talking about. Or if you just saw it a couple of weeks ago and some parts of it may have uh, slipped out of your memory, which as I'll get to is completely possible. So overall, kind of what is it you love about the series? What are are this, the TV show, especially what, what, what for you kind of really stands out? I love the world building. Um, I think it's a really interesting for fantasy because it is a, a lot of it is very clear parallels to real world cultures and real world countries. So the main country in the book is Ravka and it's very clearly Russia. Uh, there's Ketterdam, which is very much Amsterdam. There, you know, there are a lot of parallels like that. None to me, and this may may feel differently to other people, and it, it's you know definitely not my specialty. None of them felt particularly appropriative or mm-hmm. um, problematic in how they were doing that. But it felt like oh, this is a really good outline of a world that exists that's not a typical yield high fantasy world. Um, yeah. It is, it's it's a world where there are there's magic. Uh, the the Grisha who are have sort of magic powers, although they will tell you that it's science. Um, but there are also, you know, guns, there are warships, there are, it's, 
it is a world that I don't know exactly what the time period parallel is, but it is changing. It is probably either undergoing or soon will undergo uh, some industrial revolution. I mm -hmm. think it's probably like at the beginning stages of that. Um, and so it's a really interesting approach of saying, you know, here is both fantasy and a world that is able to evolve with science and technology. Yeah. Really well integrated together and just really, really good world building and really phenomenal characters. Yeah, I think just just on the world building first, there were two parts of it that I was really drawn in by. One is the time period, you're right, because I think we've kind of settled into this idea that, you know, fantasy stories have to always be in kind of Middle Ages, um, you know, swords and sorcery, 14th, 15th, 16th century kind of ideas of like, you know, kings of England. And are also very very often very clearly drawn from like English folklore and and Celtic folklore and stuff like that. This one, I, I my impression was it gets kind of in like Napoleonic to Victorian kind of like early mid nineteenth century was the general sense I got. Although obviously it's you know it's a made up world, but it's certainly much more in that time period. And also, and I don't know if this is true in the books, but especially in the visual look of it, it felt very Russian to me. And I, I know I've done a bit of digging in that. Um, it is very Russian. I'm, I'm not yeah. super familiar with uh, with Russia and or Russian history or culture. But even just reading it, you're it's it feels very Russian if you have even a passing knowledge from yeah. having taken, you know, world history in high school. <laughs> Some of the city names, uh, like you said, Ketterdam is very much Amsterdam, but there's also Novobrsk, which is basically Novobrsk, as I can understand it. The, the Wikipedia, it's so toponymics or to wow my google just decided to talk to me <laughs> but but yeah i think it's very um the city names are very russian influenced a lot of them are wearing kind of like very russian style outfits both kind of the soldiers with like cossack not cossack hats but sort of like the russian imperial hats that you think of uh and the um the the royalty it, it all feels very russian and i yeah between this and the witcher which was also very that one's polish uh but you know it, it I, it made me realize just how much like the only mythology that that I knew growing up was all English based, you know, all kind mm -hmm. of Celtic based and getting to see like what are the legends of I mean, I'd love I, I love getting to see stories from, you know, other parts of the world. But but even just, you know, Eastern Europe is so different than what we get to see a lot that that I really enjoyed that. And I felt like it was just a, a very unique kind of a world for that reason. I definitely agree. Um, I think it's cool because it feels it's fantasy enough that you understand a lot about like, oh, these are the fantasy tropes. There's magic and the magic works in understandable ways, but it also feels very specific. So even, you know, the Ravkin parts feel like they are of one specific culture and the Ketterdam parts feel like they are of a different specific culture, but that exist at the same time in the same world, which mm -hmm. you really don't see a lot of in fantasy. You see in fantasy a lot of monoliths and there's one culture that's the culture that everyone has yeah. or there are you know here are the six fantasy races and all of the dwarves are like this and all of the elves are like that and it's it's not that either there are very different kinds of people who all make sense within a culture and there are different cultures that all make sense within a world yeah. and that is i think pretty rare in in a lot of fantasy and it's fascinating and, and as i said it's just really well done yeah i i think i really like that part Especially because this is kind of getting into one of the main themes of the show. One of the, I think, the real uh, storylines of this is one of the one of the real themes of the story is what happens 
you know, when people who've been raised on basically mythology start coming in contact with, you know, the foreigners that they've been taught these terrible things about or the the other great sort of legends and, and store, bedtime stories they've heard. And now they're, you know, coming into contact with the people they've been taught are these bloodthirsty enemies or these horrible evil witches or coming into contact with this magic that they've been told about that, that might actually be seen as science or something like that. And it's just a theme that's repeated again and again that I found myself really enjoying and appreciating. Yep. <laughs> I, I think the other big theme that uh, that I really liked about it is there's very few people who I would point to and say, yep, that's the good guy. That's our hero. I, I think that there certainly are people who are the more heroic and the more protagonists, most definitely. But everyone in the story is somewhat morally compromised and all in terms of all the like hero types. And most of the villains have, from their own perspective, you can understand why they paint themselves as the hero. And I mean, I, I talk about this a lot that I hate mustache twirling and, and the like. But I think, and it's, I think it's a theme we're really going to explore is the show, and I'm curious if the books do this, really do an interesting job of exploring this question of like, what does it mean to be heroic? What does it mean to be the good guy and and who are the villains i mean i, th- I think that's really interesting um i think that that's true in a lot of ways but the main through line of the show is about alina and to some extent mal and i feel like they are much more standard heroic which isn't to say mm-hmm. they don't have nuance or they don't have you know they don't have conflict or they don't make wrong decisions or do bad things, but they are, are much more clearly like, these are the good guys who are good people. Right. Uh, but then you introduce the crows who are, you know, the, the Kettergate Bam crew who are all criminals. Like they're, yeah. they're just, they're, they're a gang. Like literally the, the, um, the gang is called the dregs and it, it's a gang that runs, criminal organizations like it's uh and they are protagonists but they are much more nuanced and much more morally gray and it's a a lot less clear if what whether what they're doing is something that would be heroic or something that would be villainous but they are absolutely protagonists and i find them really interesting and i find in the show much more so than the books i find um the the villain uh the darkling very interesting in in mm-hmm. the books he's a little bit more one note and i like that they gave him um more depth more depth yeah and and he's again it, he's not not deep in the books it's not that he has no depth but it feels like a much more traditional fantasy villain in the books in some ways and i think that they tried to bring more of that nuance in the show mm-hmm. that definitely makes sense um and I will say, I think uh, I think I, I see a little bit more moral grayness in Alina and Mal than maybe you do, and we'll get into that. I'll also say I think they were the two least interesting characters in the whole <laughs> show for me. So that may also I, be part of why I'm forgetting that, yeah, I mean, they really were kind of more that the heroes than anything else. I, I think that that's, that's fair. And they definitely are. And I think, again, as, as I said, uh, most people who have read the, the books by Lee Bardugo, by the way, who is fantastic, um, most people general consensus is that the crows books are better than the trilogy which they're in sort of different genres and different categories so i don't think it's entirely fair to say but the alina books do feel much more like a standard ya series where there's 
a girl with a lot of power who's the special chosen one who's going to save the world through this revolution to save her people and mm-hmm. uh and she has a love interest kind of a love triangle it, I, it was never to me a very convincing love triangle but it's like yeah. kind of there because it was ya of that very specific era where everything had a love triangle <laughs> I, um, I was gonna say that was the one part that felt the most ya and i was just kind of rolling my eyes at it a bit but fair enough and I, and I don't want to be dismissive of that. Like, I, I'm a YA author. I love YA. I enjoy a lot of those tropes a lot. And I think that Shadow and Bone, it, like, the series is the best example of that you're going to find. Mm-hmm. But it is, it doesn't feel like it's, even though it does with the world building and a, a lot of the story stuff, especially in the second and third book, it feels a little bit less oh, here's the trope, it's just a good execution. But the, the first yeah. book does feel like, here's good execution of a standard trope, and if you don't care about that trope, you probably won't care that much about the books. Yeah. And I will say, Lee Bardugo, I have so much respect for, because having just reread these five books, each book gets better. Like, mm. the first book was her first book, and the second book is, like, a clearly better, and then the third book is even better and then the six of crows and crooked kingdom duo are just phenomenal which i know i keep saying but it's still true well i'm not looking forward to reading them i have a great deal of respect for the author especially because of i did some research that there's a disabled character in the book who the author has described like without even meaning to became kind of a self-insert uh in a very good way because of the author's own uh disability that she was coming to terms with so we'll, we'll definitely get into that yeah did you know the thing about the the author's disability um, yeah, it's, it's actually in the author's note at the end of Six of Crows, she mentions it. And I remember her, I think, talking about it on Twitter and in interviews at the time. Awesome, awesome. The, I mean, the other thing is that Six of Crows was so incredibly popular, it, like, I don't want to say it changed YA, because I think that's a little extreme. It wasn't something like uh, Harry Potter or The Hunger Games or Twilight, but it was popular enough that in the years following it, you started to see more heist books and mm. you started to see more like, oh, you st- more Russian fantasy uh, and more like general, <laughs> more stuff that people had clearly read Six of Crows and were like, you can do that in YA fantasy and then did it. Right. Okay, so so he, this is going to be my best attempt at giving a summary of the show, uh, just to help catch people up or to help remind people, but then please fill in the notes that I miss. Our nation is set primarily in the world of Ravka, and I'll say at the beginning, there's a lot of names that are Eastern European, Russian sounding. You all know that I'm awful with names to begin with, <laughs> the uh, chronicles of Stan Sebastian and all the things that he gets up to being a rather famous thing on this show. So I'm going to get some of these names wrong. I'm going to do the best I can, though, and I'm sure uh, Becky will... Uh, 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 Fix me when I need. So the story takes place in Ravka, which is a nation that has been divided because there's a thing that kind of goes down the middle of it called the fold. And the fold is this, uh, you know, 10 mile wide or or not sure exactly how wide, but, you know, not not huge, but basically a realm of darkness where it's just all uh, smoke and darkness and you can't see anything. And there's horrible creatures that uh, will attack anything that goes through. And so it's really hard. It, it's dividing the nation. It's causing all kinds of problems. And the nation is at war with uh, its neighbors to both the north and south, the Freya and the Shu. And and so it's just like a very chaotic time. And everyone keeps hope in this world there are magic users. Uh, as we discussed, it could be magic. It could be science. Uh, and they're called the Grisha. And there are people who, as we learn, um, it's, it's not a 
since the beginning of time. It's emerged in the last, you know, maybe like 500 years or so. And there was a time of great suspicion and where a lot of fear about these people. And the general understood uh, mythology, the understanding is that the fold was created by a, a, a really evil version of the Grisha. Uh, what's the name for it? It's the, the dark one, not the... the, the so the, the darkling uh, or the black heretic. Right. Heretic. Yeah, the black heretic, the black heretic. And so we now, get, by the time the story is being told, the Grisha are in kind of an odd place where on the one hand they are kind of the like first among equals in the society. Uh, they, in the military, they're considered the second army. They get their own rations and, and supplies and they always get the best of everything. You have to test at a very, very early age to be a Grisha. And if you pass the test, you get to be, you know, taken to this great school and trained and pampered and really get to live a fairly comfortable life. Except for the fact that that fairly comfortable life is in the military uh, or in other ways in service to the, the royalty and to the nobles. And so you quickly learn that the Grisha have this weird sort of, ha uh, you know, both sides of the oppression line existence of they're kind of the, the, the you know, the, the top of the totem pole in some ways, especially in the military, and they get to boss people around, but they also have very little freedom. And they're all kind of having to do what they have to do. And, and that's a really interesting story that gets sort of unfolded as we go. Uh, Arlena, our, our hero, as uh, we mentioned earlier, she and Mal are childhood friends. And you get that kind of sense of, you know, like, th th these are the kids who play doctor together. Like, you know, they were like, grew up since they were four or five. They've always had that, like, both of them might have always had the feeling of like, I love this person. When we're old enough, maybe something will happen, but it's never quite happened. You've seen the story a million times before. And we find out that Alina is a sun summoner, which is kind of the ultimate high level of Grisha that everyone has been waiting for because the theory is, the mythology is, the, the religion really, because the whole religion has grown up around this, that a sun summoner will be able to, um, most of the Grisha can summon wind or summon fire or they can touch someone's mind, but a sun summoner can literally do that, can summon the power of the sun and thus blast away the fold, the, the dark. Yeah, so, and, and the sun summoner is thought to exist. Nobody has ever found one, but in opposition to the Darkling. And the Darkling is one family, and it's their family line back generations, and they are the only ones who can summon darkness. And exactly. so it was an ancient Darkling who created the Fold, and since then uh, all of the, the Darklings of their family line have been trying to undo it, but they can't. So they've really been waiting for a Sun Summoner who can fix Ravka and destroy the fold and make everything right, like, good again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so over the course of the story, it is the Darkling who winds up kind of taking Alina under his under his wing as part of, you know, her becoming a Sun Summoner and being pulled away into the life of the Grisha, which again, it's like she's take, she grew up fairly poor and she's taken away to this life of just opulence and decadence and, and being pampered, but also of having no, no freedom whatsoever. Um, very important note about her, by the way. This this summary is going to be way longer than I expected it to. You can skip ahead <laughs> a few minutes if you need to, but I'm going to try and get to all the major points, but do it as fast as I can. Uh, but the, the point being that she is herself half shoe. She's half the uh, um, uh, the descendants of the, the people who are in the southern nation who they're at war with, who um, are... If, if, if Ravka is Russia, this is China. She is... Uh, I, I don't think it's... 
it's not specified because obviously it's a you know fantasy world, but her features are more Asian. I think the actress is Asian, and um, a lot of the she faces an awful lot of prejudice, and and it's in ways that um, Asian people have awful have also suffered prejudice. Like at one point, people talk about changing her eyes to make them look less shoe and things like that. So, you know, she gets she meets this person who's the Darkling. Uh, long story short, they they start to connect with each other. He manipulates things so that she thinks Mal's forgotten him. She starts to fall for him. They have a kiss, but eventually she she realizes or she she finds out that he actually was the black heretic himself. He's been kept alive by magic all these years. He's the one who did all this, and he wants to use her power to you know basically take over the world. He, but, he wants to use her power to turn the fold into a weapon instead of just having it be a thing that happens to be in their country making problems. He can't go into the fold because he created it and the monsters in it will always target him specifically. That's like, they describe it as that's like his like his comeuppance for trying to yeah. do forbidden magic, basically, uh, is that he created them and so they will try and attack him as his right. punishment. But because she can summon sunlight into the fold, if she is with him, then she can drive them off and he can do whatever he wants with the fold. Right. That, yeah, thank you. Um, and 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 so, and we do learn that he, again, I said he's not a mustache twirler. He's basically the Magneto of this world in that his claim is that he, he wants all this because he was there when the, uh, the Grisha were almost completely wiped out by the world that was afraid of them. And it, it very much has that kind of... I don't think that they were intentionally trying to do an X-Men reference. I think it's just Magneto is a great example of this kind of story. But it's that idea of we were the minority that was that scared people. They tried to wipe us out. And now this person is, you know, has very justified anger and very justified fear. And it's become, well, so I need to, I need to conquer everybody else so they never come back at us. And which raises all the kind of questions of how much of this is a noble desire to help his people and how much of it is his own power going to his head and all that kind of stuff, which we'll, we'll get into in a second. And, and so of course the, um, by the end of the story, she has defeated him at least somewhat, but the fold has not been destroyed. And he is still, uh, we see him at the very end kind of coming back out of the fold with some of the creatures under his control. Yeah. The, the one plot point I would add, uh, is that, they discover through the, you know, the series of episodes or the first book that there are ancient magical creatures that can amplify a gracious power. And Alina has this magnificent power, but it's not powerful enough for her to face down this very old, very experienced guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so initially he says, oh, let's go get this for you so we can get rid of the fold. And she believes him. And then it turns out he wants her to be more powerful, but specifically if he puts, if he kills this creature at the stag and puts the uh, amplifier made out of its antlers on her, then it basically enslaves her power to his. Right. Um, and that doesn't end up going as he planned and she ends up able to, to free herself, but there is a while in there where she's being controlled by him very directly. Right. Uh, and it does amplify her power and there are more amplifiers out there that are not within the scope of the first season. Yeah, I think I, I think that's such important parts of the story. And, and so I, I'm kind of then going to back up a bit because basically there's three different storylines. The other two are much shorter though. The second is this group we're introduced to called the Crows, uh, who Becky talked about before. They're basically criminals. They start out as, out as the ones who are meant to basically kidnap the Sun Summoner and bring her back 
to criminal overlords who want her for nefarious purposes, they have a whole great series of adventures. It, it becomes kind of a heist movie in their episodes or their parts of the episodes. Uh, but eventually they do wind up kind of teaming up with uh, Alina and, and Mal. There's a whole thing about like Mal being separated from Lena and then reconnected, yada, yada. And, um, but they really have this very interesting story because among their group is people who have all kind of different ethical and moral perspectives. And we'll, we'll get into them and kind of really uh, pick apart who they are. But their story, I think, becomes a really interesting one as, as they're kind of the people, they're, 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 they're kind of the Han Solos of the story, you know, in, in the, or, or even more like the Hondos and the Cad Banes. Like they don't have a moral stake in the war one way or the other. Most of them don't. One of them does, which we'll get into. They're just kind of trying to make a buck and stay alive, and they get kind of sucked into the whole fighting, which is great. And then the last thing, which is kind of a um, a side story, and it feels kind of disconnected from stuff, except that it really deepens the world, and also I think is kind of maybe my favorite part of the story. There's a um, another uh, Grisha named Nina who has been kind of sent on a, another mission. And she has a whole bunch of adventures and winds up being marooned with a member she, uh, member of the uh, nation to the north, the F- Freydlin, I think is how you pronounce it. F- Fjordan is how I read it. I don't know if Fjordan, that's correct. Yeah, no. I think it's correct. Uh, I think we heard it in the show, certainly, but I, again, mean names. And we kind of learn, and this is where we really get into the like, you know, what do you know of others? Because he's grown up in a land that doesn't have Grisha, believing Grisha are all these horrible, terrible witches who will do horrible things to him. And it's a really fun story because they're also kind of very, they're kind of the Christian conservative of the group. They're super puritanical. <laughs> and Nina's very like, yeah, nudity, you know, like what the heck? Uh, Sexuality is and, fun. And he is specifically a witch hunter who thinks that Grisha are witches. Like he's exactly. been trained to fight Grisha and to kill them or bring them back for trial and beheading. Exactly. And so her story, their story is kind of a fun one. And it goes in kind of um when I say predictable, I don't mean this in a bad way because I think, as you said, it's very good examples of the tropes. Um, but they 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 fall for each other, and then they have some some things happen where he thinks that she broke her tr- his trust, etc. Uh, uh, etc. Et so I I've kind of just tried to throw a whole bunch of things out there. I just I I'm not obviously going to give a full summary to it that you're going to be able to understand completely. But I want to just give people enough information that we can then jump into the the questions we want to discuss, and people won't be totally lost. Uh, so with that in mind, Becky, is there any other kind of major things you think I missed? Uh, I think I think that's the main thing. Uh, the one thing that I want to note, just that I think is interesting uh, uh, with this as an adaptation, is that um, the crow characters do not like they they are. It's basically a prequel for them uh, because Six of Crows is set at like a year or two, or maybe maybe even more than that after the end of the Alina series. Mm-hmm. And so when they were like, yeah, it's everybody's going to be there. It's going to be both Six of Crows and Alina. People who'd read the books were like, how are you going to do that? Uh, and so I thought the way they integrated them was really interesting. Uh, but none of what happens with the crows, some of it is like kind of mentioned in their backstory in Six of Crows, but none of that happens in Six of Crows. It's not, which confused me going into the series, but mm, then made a okay. lot of sense by the end. That makes sense. Cool. So let's talk about some of the ethical questions that are that are really front and center in this. Uh, and let's first start with the Darkling. What was your take on his character? And well, I know you had some kind of questions <laughs> coming out of it, but let's just start with kind of what, what were your thoughts about him? So I thought, I mean, I 
I don't care about villains. I don't like villains. I know that a lot of this podcast is like, let's talk about the interesting ethics of villainy and how great it is that villains are nuanced. And and (laughs) I I appreciate all of that. I think it's always very smart and interesting conversation. But I, as a person who who consumes stories, don't care about villains that much. That's legit. Um, I did in in the uh, in the TV show. I thought that he was a more interesting character in the TV show than in the books, where he's a little bit one note. Uh, I think the books maybe mention him having had you know a love interest at some point in passing, but they I don't think they have nearly the um, focus that they're, they're basically there's a flashback in the show, mm-hmm. which is like oh when he was you know actually young he had this other Grisha woman who he was in love with and they were gonna spend their lives together and they were training other Grisha and then they she was killed in front of him because and all of their students because people were hunting the Grisha as witches and he escaped and that was when he decided he needed to protect himself and the other Grisha and that's really interesting and I think a lot more. Uh, sympathetic to him than the mm-hmm. the books are. The books have some of that set up, but the books also kind of just give him a superiority complex. Yeah. There's a lot in the books about Grisha have longer lifespans than non-Grisha, and he in particular has lived hundreds of years because the more powerful you are, the longer you will live. Um, and so there's a lot where he's like, Alina, what are you doing messing around with Mal? He's normal, and that's pointless he's gonna die and you're not gonna care about him anymore but i'll be here forever with you uh and so it's less about him actually struggling with how the grisha are treated and more about him feeling that grisha are superior to non-grisha right Uh, and so i thought that the change was a positive change that made him a much more interesting character to think about yeah i think that's very true and i think in the show he does still have that superiority but to me, this is where he really reminds me of Magneto in that way, or even Killmonger, in that same sense of, like, there is the superior, like, there. I mean, Magneto especially definitely has a sense of, like, we are higher evolved beings, we deserve to rule. Uh, and even Professor X kind of has that same idea of, like, we are higher evolved beings. And for, Mag- you know, and I, I think for Magneto, the Darkling, like Magneto, there is a lot of the, like, remembrance of, you know, the fear of a majority group trying to wipe out, you know, a minority they didn't understand or afraid of, um, or just thought were different and hated. Uh, but I, I think, I think to me, what makes his character so interesting is that sort of like, when do you let go of that? You know, when are you able to see that things have shifted or at least accept that there's a possibility of them shifting and, and maybe move away from that? Because I think to me, he feels like a character who doesn't understand his own motivations, who, is telling himself the story of I'm doing this to defend my people. I'm doing this to protect us. I'm doing this so we're not killed the way we were. My, my love and all my students were killed way back when. But now it's become more about his need to be in control and his need to, you know, somewhat the superiority, somewhat his ego, somewhat is I need to conquer because I can't imagine anything else. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think it's really interesting and telling that what he does that he... So he has come to power. Uh, he's the general of the Second Army, which is a, in, a lot more effective and a lot more feared than the First Army, which is like the regular army with mm-hmm. guns and soldiers. So like they they do regular war. Uh, and then the Grisha are this very specialized uh, 
army of only Grisha and it's, you know, Grisha whose powers let them have really strong offensive capabilities. Um, his version of coming to power, he did by saying, like, he told all of the Grisha, I want to protect you, I want to build this system where we can come and be safe by serving the crown as an army. And so he turned them into, through, you know, generations of claiming, oh, he would die, and then a few years later another young darkling would show up that was always him with, you know, slightly, like, magically altered features or whatever. Mm -hmm. Always him. No one ever caught on because he had lived for so many centuries and nobody else had. Um, But so he, through those centuries, formed this second army as something that would always be very loyal to the crown. The Grisha don't have any choice. Like, they are conscripted. So when you're a kid and you're tested, if you turn out to be a Grisha, you are forced into this army. Right. So it is a lap of luxury. You do get, you know, a very opulent life and a lot of training in school that you might not otherwise. But you also don't have any choice except to be a soldier. And Anno say that some, almost all of them are soldiers, but some are sold to brothels. Or so, in one case, we meet someone who... She's what's called a tailor, which is something very rare, but she basically can do a kind of healing that's kind of half healing, half, you know, uh, physical alterations, you know, like plastic surgery kind of stuff. And uh, and so she basically become she gets sold to the queen and become like her job is to like, you know, help the queen like look pretty and, and, you know, continue to look young and things like that. And she openly talks about how much she hates that and and how much she feels like she doesn't like that, you know, that they have no choice in this. And we, w- we will talk more about her later because yeah. she is a great character who I think got the short shrift a little bit in the TV show, mm-hmm. but in the books she is phenomenal. Um, and her name is Jenya, just for those who are following yes. along. Um, yeah, and I think, so the, the way it's set up is, you know, in if you're a Grisha in Ravka, you become a soldier and you have no choice. If you are a Grisha in Firda, you will either be in hiding or you will get killed as a witch. If you are a Grisha in Shu, you will be probably tortured as a medical experiment. Oh, interesting. Uh, and if you are in a, a Grisha anywhere else, you will probably be be forcibly turned into an indentured servant who theoretically could get out of your contract if you had enough money, but are, you're basically sold as a, as a slave. Or maybe self-employed if you manage to finagle that well mm-hmm. enough. Um, and that's fascinating, most- that's fascinating to me because I had certainly got the impression that the Grisha were just something from Ravka. So I guess that in the books they go much deeper into where they are in the whole rest of the world. Yeah, they, they I think in the books it's, it's more clear. They do exist probably everywhere in the world, certainly in all of the uh, areas of the world that we see. They are most common in Ravka because in most other places they're in hiding. And in Ravka, at least they are able to come out of hiding with the price being that they have to become soldiers. Mm, okay, that makes sense. So yeah, so given all that, where do you, where, wh- how do you see the, the Darkling's motivations in this? Is he... Is there any level of, like, justification to him? Is he just no. a... Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel I feel about him and his, but I'm trying to protect people. I mean, almost the same way I feel about, like, Galen Urso and his, like, well, I'll serve the evil empire, but I'm going to build in a failsafe. But also I'm going to build the Death Star. Like, <laughs> you, there were other choices you could have made, mm-hmm. and you didn't. <laughs> um... And I think especially for uh, the Darkling, it's 
felt to me very much like through the ages he has lost if there was ever any actual nobility or desire to save people that has long since fallen away and now he is just power hungry he wants to be in charge he wants to use the fold as a weapon and he can say it's to make Grisha safe and maybe that's possible but the moral compromises he is willing to make to do that, which include enslaving people and looking the other way as people get killed, uh, is, makes it pretty clear that he does not, even if he does care somewhat about protecting Grisha as a concept, he does not care about protecting actual individual Grisha as yeah. people. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good way to put it. Although I will say, now I definitely need to get you back for a Star Wars ethics episode, because <laughs> I kind of think Galen Erso did the right thing, but that's... It's a whole other conversation we'll definitely have. Um, but yeah, I think I think in this in this regard, I feel like I have more sympathy for the overall cause that he's for. And this may also be where I'm just, I, I think Magneto's the hero of a lot of X-Men stories, <laughs> even though he's painted as the villain. But I think Magneto has a very similar kind of, he is so far into the ends justify the means that he's not able to see, he, he's so willing to sacrifice the people he's claiming to fight for in ways that I think are often very problematic and very hurtful. Um, and, and and that, to me, the Darkling is that, but even more so. Yeah, I, I think the Darkling, so I'm, I'm not a huge X-Men person, uh, but I tend to think that Magneto has more nuance as a character than the Darkling does. Mm -hmm. um, and I, yeah, I, I think he is basically, he is somebody who has had terrible things happen to him, but is using that trauma as an excuse to be evil, as opposed to somebody who is trying to do the right thing, but going about it through bad means. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good way to put it. And it, I think what I liked about the story is that you can wind up feeling like the cause of Grisha freedom and of Grisha rights is a very important one that we should come back to. And the Darkling is not doing it. And, and one of the nice things about the story is that towards the end, there are a number of Grisha who want those who want to end the oppression, who want their people to be treated well, but also realize that uh, the Darkling is not getting them there and, and, and break with him. And so certainly, and again, please no spoilers here, but I, 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 I am really hoping that we get more of different versions of fighting for uh, Grisha rights in the future. Uh, but I think you're, that, you know... That, that, that clearly this this wasn't the way to do it. Indeed. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, no, I put you now in like, I'm, I'm sure there's 8 million spoilers you want to say in response to that. Yeah, I, well, and I do think, so one thing that I think we can talk about, so I um, noted uh, on our outline document, it, you know, are the Grisha a stand-in for marginalized people? And I don't really think they are. Mm -hmm. I think they can kind of generally be if you want to. But... One thing that I thought was really interesting, and I, I don't remember exactly what the conversation in this show is, but a lot of the Grisha have a sense of we have to follow the Darkling because that's the right way of doing it. We can't we can't fight people on our own. We can't just say, I'm a Grisha and that's a good thing. It basically to me felt like a lot of people were going a very respectability politics route with following mm -hmm. the Darkling by trying to say, oh, I'm, you know, I have powers, but I'm not like bad people with power. I'm a good person with power. And so I'm right. going to use it in the right way as if that would be a way to save themselves from 
people thinking that they are witches, uh, right. which I thought was was really interesting. I don't have, you know, a huge point there and it, it starts to drift a little out of my lane. Um, but I but I do think that there is there there are potential questions there about, you know, is there is this the way for the Grisha to prove themselves prove that they're not bad? Should they have to do that? Should they is there a different way they could have done it? And, and I think right. there are a lot of interesting nuances there. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I think the respectability politics is a good point. I think there's also an interesting point they're making there of because it has now been that for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, if you if you tell a group of people that you represent their only source of freedom and their only source of hope, you know, and, and that's how just generation after generation are raised – it becomes easy. like you can understand why a sense of like okay we have to do things even if we find that 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 person idea of the right way wasn't the right one we're still holding this idea of looking for the right way you can see how those kind of ideas get just like baked in and and I think that's going to be an important story of seeing how that gets unwound and in terms of the question about marginalized people and again I'm not going to keep going to the X Men uh, point all throughout the show but here I think there's a very good parallel or at least. There's an analysis of the X-Men I've seen that I can apply to this, which is that uh, a black creator whose name I'm, I'm trying to dig up the article and, and attach it here, but I can't promise I'll find it. But he made the point that one of the reasons why the X-Men, you know, you can look at Magneto and Professor X as kind of stand-ins for different strategies of fighting oppression, Malcolm and King being one examples of those different strategies, but that to call them those two is complete reductionism and ridiculous. But then even more than that, the reason why the X-Men don't completely work as a metaphor for marginalized people is that most of the time, you know, or not most, in all of our real world, when marginalization is based in this idea of, oh, those people are so different, they're so scary, they can do things we can't, that's all racist nonsense. With mutants, it's true. Like, there is an element to which the, peop the mutants are fundamentally different and have powers humans don't. And that doesn't justify oppression in any way, shape, or form, but it makes it very it, it makes it hard to sort of draw a comparison. And I, I the only reason I'm mentioning all that is I feel like th there's the same kind of thing here in that there is something about uh, Grisha of uh, you know the Grisha are very much a marginalized people, and the fact that they have all these great powers certainly doesn't justify their marginalization. But, like, the fact that, like, in some ways, like, they can take over in some ways because they are so powerful, I think, makes it a very nuanced story. But one that, for me at least, makes it important to kind of separate that away from comparing it to marginalized story, people in our own world. Because I think that's often so often a myth, you know, like, like oh, the Jews have all of this money power or, you know, black people have this natural athleticism or, like, whatever it is, like, idiotic racist stereotypes are so not true in our own world. But I think there is... The, the way that that happens in these fantasy worlds, especially with the, the Grisha, feels like that, that that makes a barrier to make drawing a full comparison. D does that make sense? Yes, that, that was a very well-stated way of putting it that I was trying to figure out okay. how, to, how to explain, but, but you explained it very well, uh, which I couldn't quite find words for. So that's, that, that is helpful. Yeah. Um, and I do think, so one thing I want to mention about some of the, the you know, but these people do actually have very destructive powers, potentially, um... I don't, it's not, it's not a major spoiler. I think it is within bounds. It, it was not specified that I recall in the TV series, but it's not spoiling any plot points. Go for it. But is that Matthias, who is a, uh, a, a witch hunter in the Fjordan army, um, his 
whole family was killed by Grisha. Mm. because there is a war between Firda and Ravka, and as part of that war, there was an attack, and his family was killed by Grisha. Uh, and he was orphaned, and he was brought into this witch hunting group, specifically because he was so hurt and scared and wanted justice and revenge for right. what had happened to him. And so a lot of his, you know, he he and Nina have a lot of work to do in, fig- like, talking to each other because she quite rightly feels unfairly persecuted because he wants to murder her as a witch and she's not right she's but he also understandably feels that grisha are dangerous and in his case evil which is not true or fair but his experience is of having his family murdered so you can understand why he is able like why why that propaganda works on him yeah so i i think there is you know uh, yeah, it, it is not fair to say these are marginalized people compared to actual real-world racism, which is right. not based on anything real, where you can make the case that even though the people are not inherently bad, they could be looked at as dangerous in a fantasy world where they do have literal magic. Right. And I think that last point, especially about um, uh, Nina and, and Matthias, is so important because they are... I don't think it's a parallel for the kind of like systemic marginalizations we talk about often, like racism, sexism, uh, heterosexism, cis sexism, and things like that. But certainly something that happens all the time in world history is instances where two groups of people are fighting, one of them gets the upper hand and winds up oppressing the other. And so to the whole world, it now looks like the ones who are being oppressed are the victims and are being horribly treated, and that's true until that other group gets the power and they start oppressing the group, the people who are oppressing them. And, and you know, you've got parts of the world where things like that can have gone on for centuries. Uh, I remember when um, uh, the fighting in Yugoslavia uh, was, was at its height and Americans didn't really understand it. We kept trying to, like, make heroes out of one particular... I, I think... I, I don't want to get too far into the commentary on that system. Like, <laughs> what Serbia was doing, I think, is kind of a... a, a a step beyond a lot of it, but there would be moments where, like, you know, one Croatia was very much seen as the victim, and then they turned around and started doing terrible things to a different group, and then you know that kind of thing happening again and again and again. And and to me, that's somewhat the the story that we get with those two groups of the you know the Fjordin, the the Grisha and and normal people, or, or the Grisha and the Fjordin, you know, warring back and forth, and both sides have grievances. And part of the story is can can all sides meet each other as people and be able to set aside the, well, but your grandparent did this to my grandparent, so I have to hate you forever and, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think, I think we're kind of, uh, without, we, I want to get to the crows for sure, but we've kind of, kind of delved right into the Nina and, and Matthias story. Um, so why don't we keep, keep going with that a little bit, especially because I think one of the most important things here is that Nina, as you brought up, is a fairly different character, at least in one dimension, from what she is in the books. Uh, g- go into that. Uh, okay, so so one thing that I, I will just say in terms of like orienting again where where the different books fall because this does throw pull so many storylines together. Nina and Matthias are Crow's characters. Um, oh, interesting. Okay, I, I yeah. did feel their story like didn't really fit with everything else going on in this season, so that kind of makes sense. Yeah, so they, and I actually think it's really interesting because I said, you know, this is kind of a prologue for the Crows characters and there's a whole heist that doesn't exist in the books. When we come into uh, the beginning of Six of Crows, Nina and Matthias are where we see them at the end of this season of Shadow and Bone. 
Mm. Um, and so everything that happened between them is their backstory in the books. So it's described in their flashbacks, but it's not really on the page. So I thought it was really interesting that they were just like, anyway, here's Nina and Matthias doing the thing that you know they do in the books, but they uh, don't do that actually within the time frame of the books. Interesting. Uh, so, so I thought that was really cool. Uh, and you definitely need to read Six of Crows uh, and it's, Crooked Kingdom. It's going on the list for sure. <laughs> um. But yeah, so one thing that is a recurring theme through the books that I think is not as clear in the TV show is that the Grisha are all supposed to be physically extraordinarily beautiful. Right. Um, they, they're, the reason they keep saying their power is, you know, is science and not magic is because it's molecules and whatever. You can get very comic booky with it. It's, it's <laughs> molecules. Yeah. Um, but basically, their power is natural, and when they use it, it makes them healthier and, by extension, more attractive. And when they don't use it, they become physically weaker and sicker and less attractive. Um, and so, like, at the beginning of the books, Alina is very sickly, and she she's slow, and she can't keep up with, you know, the, the rest of her, her friends, and she's always frustrated by how sick she is all the time. And, you know, she has, like, bags under her eyes, and she she's basically described as always kind of looking like a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when she starts using her power, she suddenly becomes both physically fit and much more physically attractive and there's so much in there that you could say about beauty standards and i do think we will get to that when we talk more about genya but uh one thing that's really interesting is that nina in the books is fat right she is simultaneously described as somebody who is like like i don't think they use the word fat but mm-hmm. it is clear through every description of her that she is. Mm-hmm. And she is also extraordinarily beautiful. And the books never present that as a contradiction. Yeah. That's, she is an extremely beautiful fat woman. And that is really cool. And that was something that I know was really meaningful to a lot of people reading the series. Uh, and the actress they cast is not. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that is honestly just a huge bummer. Yeah. I, I, I can definitely understand that. And I think especially if I'd read the books, I would I had no idea of that. And I did. I, I really liked the way their love story was told, especially with this whole idea of her being she's not presented as kind of like the seductress vixen, you know, where like there's any kind of slut shamey happiness. She's just someone who is very comfortable with her body and very comfortable with sexuality. And yeah, she's also she's bi, uh, by the way. It's oh, not, awesome. It's not as explicit in the Six of Crows duology, but there is a still-in-progress series that follows Six of Crows, uh-huh. where she is one of the main characters, and it is very clear by the end, because I'm in the midst of rereading the first book in that series, uh, and it's very clear by the end of it. She she has a girlfriend. That's awesome. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, she, she is very comfortable with her sexuality, uh, in, I think, honestly, the same way that Jesper is. Uh, yes. we, we will get to him later, and he is... So delightful. He, he is also queer, very clearly in the TV show. But yeah, I think it is disappointing because I think that there is, it's starting to change, but there's still this idea of, you know, if you want a woman to be any gender, but especially a woman on on screen to be seen as attractive and desirable, then they have to fit the kind of much more conventional fins, you know, stereotype of beauty. And especially because I think there is a, a counter to that of, the, you know, heavier set woman who is also very sexual is often seen as this, like, 
horrible joke, you know, like, oh my God, you know, the, the, the frat boy joke of like, if you get so drunk, you'll sleep with her. Like I saw that joke played out in so many eighties and nineties movies, you know, uh, and it's just horribly offensive on so many lanes. So I, to me, it would have been so great to have this character be uh, a more heavyset person who was also portrayed as, you know, as you said, heavyset and beauty and sexiness are by no means mutually exclusive. And, and I get that, like, I'm not going to point at the show and be like, this is the worst thing in the world because what they're doing is what Hollywood does all the time. But given how progressive some other parts of it are in terms of being fairly mixed race casting and uh, very queer friendly, it is very disappointing to hear that. Yeah, so I, that was one thing that I had wanted to mention. Um, yeah, that's a bummer. Uh, I think, I mean, the actress does a fine job, but she doesn't, she doesn't look like the Nina in the books. And because of that, she kind of doesn't feel like the Nina in the books. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fair. Which is a bummer, because the Nina in the books is a fa- fantastic character. Right. Um, and Matthias is great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and their their romance is really great. Um, yeah, and in terms of... Um... Uh, other kind of uh, Grisha who have sort of like in terms of these questions of body altering and stuff. I know you also want to talk about Jenya. So get get him, what what fascinates you about her character there? So so what fascinates me? I mean, it's kind of it goes so. There's a lot in the books and only a little of it in the TV show, but that does make it clear that beauty is a kind of power that can be used as a weapon. Mm. Um, and I think. Again, less so in the series or in in the TV show, but it's that's something that you see reflected a little bit in you know when Alina is not using her power, she is weak and ugly. Feels like too much of a stretch, especially like in the TV show. I was like, did she? She didn't really get a makeover. She got to wash her hair. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like... I, I think there's a long established trope in Hollywood that the ugly girl, the, the maker of the ugly girl, just means brushing her hair and taking off her glasses. Um, yeah, so so she she got that kind of makeover, so it was not particularly noticeable in the uh, the TV show. But in the books, she does go from being somebody who is not supposed to be pretty to somebody who is extremely pretty uh, as she gains literal power. Um, and there's a lot. There's a character. She she's a pretty minor character in both the first book and in the series. Who's a, a Grisha named Zoya, who is. Uh, supposed to be extraordinarily beautiful and extremely intimidating, and those two things are incredibly linked. Mm. Uh, she she basically she has men throwing themselves at her, and she does not care, and she is also capable of being extremely violent. Um, and those are pretty linked, and you see, I mean, even the Darkling is supposed to be this incredibly attractive, charismatic man who is extremely magically powerful, and it's not it's not a one to one like oh power makes you beautiful, but I think it does think about beauty as a weapon, and that becomes very clear with Jenya, who yeah. is... So So Matthew mentioned earlier... Well, um, can, can I interrupt then and say one quick thing yes. about Zoya? That is so interesting to hear, because I don't think that comes through in the show about Zoya at all, and one of the first things that we learn about Mal is that the night before a battle, Zoya says that you know she likes to have, a, in her words, a good tumble with a stranger to kind of settle her nerves between a battle. And she says this while trying to seduce Mal. And Mal is able to say, you know, no, no, thank you. And because he clearly has, and he just might not be what he's into, but also he clearly has all these feelings for uh, Alina. And so knowing all that, uh, that, that scene of Mal rejecting her feels like it has so much more power and importance. 
Yeah, well, I mean, also in the books, I'm pretty sure they do hook up. Oh, really? Okay, um, that's a that's a um, that's a big difference. And, and uh, it's something that Zoya and Alina have to talk about down the line. And there is like some. It was not my favorite thing about the books, but there is some like catty girl fighting over Mal. Okay, and it uh, like that. <sighs> Fair I, it's, enough. See, it's, yeah, it's like I said, it's not my favorite part of the books, but it also doesn't feel as gross as it might That's because fair. Zoya is increasingly through the series a very specific character, mm-hmm. and so it feels less like oh these girls don't like each other because they're fighting over a boy, and more like these girls don't like each other because Zoya's kind of a bitch. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> like, uh, and she just doesn't like anyone and alina she's horrible to alina so alina doesn't like her because she doesn't like having somebody who's horrible to her (laughs) and it feels much more based in their actual personalities than just generically oh girl's gonna fight so it it felt like kind of an attempt to subvert that that didn't really quite do what it was trying to uh but it is i Again, I don't have, like, a thesis on it, but I do think that that Zoya is really interesting. But Genya is beautiful, uh, and she is a servant. I mean, she, she she's functionally a slave, right. um, but it's clear in the books, the Grisha all have different colored uniforms depending on what their power is, uh, and her uniform is a palace servant's uniform. She doesn't even get a Grisha uniform. Right. We're very surprised um, to learn she's a Grisha in the show because she's presented as a palace servant. Yeah. And so her her ability is to physically alter the way people look. Um, and it's a pretty rare ability. She's not actually the only one who can do it, but it's it's a rare ability in part because most people who are able to do it end up learning to... They become heart renders who can, you know, explode your heart by looking at you because that's considered a more powerful and more respectable thing to be able to do. Uh, but when she when she showed an affinity for tailoring, the Darkling basically handed her to the queen as a slave to make the queen look beautiful. Uh, and she has been his spy in the palace ever since. And this was, you know, when she was like a, a preteen, like 11 or 12. Uh, and it also is clear in the books that the king has raped her. Mm, okay. Yeah, that does not come through in the show. Yeah, and I, and I think the reason I wanted to mention that is because there is... It, it, I'm not going to get into it too much because it does become more important to the story in later books, and I don't want to spoil all that. There is a lot done with Genya, but I think watching the show, it may come across, and you can tell me if this was how it came across to you, Matthew, but there's more that she kind of just betrays Alina, because there's a, a plot point in the show where she basically sells Alina out to the Darkling, and Alina's like, but I thought we were friends, because they were friends. They had been very good friends in the palace, and then Alina ran away, and Genya sided with the Darkling, and is now helping the guy who it's at this point basically enslaving Alina. Yeah. And for Alina, it's very much a slap in the face, but you find out that what Genya got out of it is she doesn't have to be a slave in the palace anymore. She's given... She, her powers are now considered the same as the Heartrender power, and she's given the Heartrender uniform, and she's now part of the army instead of a servant in the palace. Right. And when you think about the way that she is, has been set up by the Darkling to have this horrible experience, and how desperate that made her to prove that she can do more than that, 
and then that desperation is used to turn her against Alina. I find that, like, that's honestly part of why it's like, I don't care about the Darkling. He's, maybe he thinks he's being noble, but he's being terrible because he put her in that situation and clearly does not care about her except for what she can do to him. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I just think that those character beats are so interesting of having her be genuinely care about and befriend Alina because that is genuine, but then her also having a struggle of which matters to me more, this person who has become my good friend when nobody else was, or the chance to get out of this extremely horrible situation and get respect from everyone around me right. and choosing respect. Um, I, I just find that to be such an interesting question that she has to face. Mm. And I, I just, basically I just wanted to talk about it for 10 minutes because no, for uh, sure. I think that she's a really fascinating character. And I will say, and it's possible that like, I, mean, I watched the whole show in a day which is, you know, often not the... I, I love binging, but it's not often the best way to kind of retain all the important details. Um, I, I will say, funny funny story, I watched it a couple of weeks before you did, and then you email... I said, I'm super excited to talk about it, and then you emailed me, and I'm like, yeah, here are the things I want to talk about, and realized, oh my God, I don't remember anything about this show. And so I went back <laughs> and actually rewatched a lot of it, and I read all the episode summaries, and I was like, okay, it all came back to me. Um and so maybe like when I was watching it the first time, I, I caught that. I don't remember doing so, though, because that to me didn't come through anywhere near as much. I I got the impression that she was kind of had always been kind of working for the Darkling and that um, her friendship with Alina was never really that that real. Um, and I remember feeling a little frustrated by it because it felt like there were a couple of characters who we found out had actually always been working the secret agenda. And I sort of got like, okay, but then I now don't know like what to trust in terms of like who feels these like betrayed feelings and stuff like that. Yeah. And and I mean, she, she was always working for the Darkling, but the dark working for the Darkling with one exception that I, I don't remember if it was made explicit in the show, but it was happening in the show. Um, but with that one exception, she was genuinely being a friend to Alina, and she did care about Alina. Mm. And it, in the books, it's more clear, like, uh, all of the, the Grisha, the different, like, ranks or the different abilities that they have, they all sort of stick to themselves and none of them will talk to her. Mm -hmm. And Alina is immediately like, fuck that, she's nice, she's my friend. I'm yeah. not gonna only hang out with other summoners, mm -hmm. I'm gonna be a good person who stands by my friend even if none of you like that yeah and that had genuinely meant a lot to her but she was still willing to betray Alina because of what it meant to have the people who had not respected her and, suddenly do so and I think this is a big difference between book and movie or book and on screen is that you can get the internal monologues of different characters because I took that scene as that she had that she basically was a master manipulator who had been standing up for Lee in all those ways in order to earn her friendship and trust. Um, so to me, that makes her a much more interesting character and makes me really excited to, to read the books and also hopefully that we get more of that explicitly uh, in the second season. So I mean, I, I think we will because she, yeah. um, she, she's never like... Basically, if there's, you know, if there's like the Scooby gang, she's never really in the Scooby gang, but she's always one of the most important characters to the Scooby gang. Okay, cool. Um, and she, so the one exception I mentioned is that Alina is writing all of these letters to Mal and she's so sad that he never writes back and she thinks he's forgotten her. And it's because Jenya is not sending the letters, which she is doing on the Darkling's orders. Right. Like that is explicitly her, you know 
her messing with Alina because she's been told to, right. but her actual friendship is genuine. Right. And I, I think that that in the kind of you need to forget your old life and accept all the good parts of the new one, I think I could believe that she saw that as an act of friendship in a like I'm protecting you from you know bad decisions kind of way. But yeah, I, I would I just want I just want to know more about her internal motivations. I think that'd be great to see. Uh, yeah, and she, I mean, she's also somebody who because she grew up under the Darkling's influence very much doing what he told her. She, like, she has bought the Darkling's line, hook, line, and sinker. She, and especially because she has had personal violence inflicted on her because of her abilities. Like, right. it's, it like, her, her desire for the Grisha to be free is extremely clear and present in her, but she believes that the Darkling is trying to do that and is doing it the right way. And so even... So she chooses him, I think, part of that as well. And it is a case where, like, the Darkling is not that nuanced, but Jenya is really nuanced. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and I think that that brings more nuance to what the Darkling is doing. Definitely. Well, uh, we, we're already gone on for a while, and there's obviously <laughs> the one huge thing that I want to get into that we haven't touched on yet. So let's talk about the crows. Um, <gasps> they're so good. <laughs> and there, there's three main crows, I think. And, and I think... Important to know about the crows is, as you said, like they start out as just plain criminals, and their big mission goal is to kidnap someone and bring her back to someone who clearly has nefarious purposes for them. Uh, but but as you learn more about them, you learn that they're all very kind of interesting, good, good motivations. Um, and there's three of them. One of them, and I, I think kind of uh, in some ways maybe the sort of closest to being uh, a more traditional hero, though obviously in a very hard situation is Inez. Am I pronouncing it right? It's I... No. Okay. <laughs> Inez. Inez, thank you. Um, and she is a woman who is a very good hunter, has very good skills. She's not a Grisha, but she's incredibly talented. Uh, but we learn she's she's a slave, uh, or at least a, an indentured servant, which is basically slavery there. But you can buy your way out of a contract. And De- uh, Kez, who is the... Kaz. Kaz, thank you. Uh, Kaz, who is the head of the uh, group has uh and, and and has some very questionable moral decisions himself but he is attempting to pay off her contract he's attempting to buy her freedom and we learn not for like so that he can own her he wants her to be free um so she's a very interesting character and she is part of a religion that is basically kind of worshiping the sun summoner or the idea of the sun summoner uh and and i, I would love to hear you say more about that religion was kind of wrap up introductions to them but part of what it means for her is that she doesn't kill. And she, or she, until now, she has never killed, and she very much doesn't want to kill. And then you sort of, like, to me, like, kind of the moment where I'm like, okay, this is a very morally questionable, interesting character, is when she says, you know, she gets into a situation where she can win her freedom by killing someone. She won't kill someone. So she goes to her friend Jasper and says, can you kill him for me? At which point he's like, um, how is that any different? And for her, it clearly is, but I think it's a very interesting, like, bit of moral grayness for her. Uh, Je- Jesper, then, is the... He's the sharpshooter of the group. He's very kind of, like, the playful ne'er-do-well. He is... He's he's a rake. He's a, uh, yeah, he's the D&D bard. Like, he is the one who will <laughs> seduce the palace guard in order to get in. He literally does that. Um... Is he canonically gay or bi in the show? He's bi. Okay, that's it's 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 the show or the uh, I don't I don't remember in the show in the books it's pretty clear that he and Nina are both 
interested in multiple genders and don't really discriminate based on gender particularly. They just like people and they really like flirting with anyone who will stand still long enough for them to bat their eyelashes at. He's Lando Calrissian. Got it. Yes. Uh, and, and he, and he ha- again, has a, you know, he, he definitely seems of the, like, I want to help and protect my friends. And that's what matters to him. Kaz, then, um, Kaz, to me, is the most interesting of them because he's also sort of, like, at first he just seems like he is a gang leader. He, he, on the one hand, they all seem very kind of down and out. But also, I mean, they have some power. They, he... Kaz owns a casino, and these two help him run it. So they're not like the starving on the street kind of... The most dangerous 16-year-olds in the world. Yes, I love that. Are they supposed to be 16? <laughs> I, I think in, in Six of Crows, I think Kaz is 17. Like, it's it's one of those things where you're like, I will accept this because it's a YA standard. They have to be teenagers. But oh, like, okay. Yeah. If, it, if the first trilogy had not been YA, so this... Six of Crows could have been published as an adult. They could have been 20-somethings, and that would have probably made more sense. Yeah, in the show, I got the sense that the other two are kind of like mid-20s, and Kaz is like early mid-30s. Um, <laughs> no, no they're, they're all supposed to be teenagers. Okay, well, that's interesting. Uh, although it kind of helps make make their, their, their questionable decisions make a lot more sense, because I think he is... He wants, you know, he wants to win out. He's got this rival gang and a rival gang leader he definitely wants to beat... But it also feels like a lot of it is he wants him and his people to, to have a better life. Like he wants a better life for themselves. He's try, let, let's kind of start with him because I feel like the perfect description of him is he's not immoral. He's very, very amoral. He is, I know what I want. I know that this is going to benefit the people I care about. And the, the people it hurts, I'm, I'm not going to think about that along the way. D- does, that, does that feel like an accurate description for him? Yeah, I think so. It's... More so in the show than in the books, um, mm-hmm. because I it's it's actually really fascinating to hear your take on him from having only seen the show. Um, because in the books, for the most part, he cares a lot less about the people in his life. It, it's not driven by a sense of I want to protect these people. It is to some extent with Inej. They have a really interesting arc, uh, which I will not get into, but I really need you to read the books Uh (laughs) so that we can talk about it. Uh, But they they have a really interesting arc and a relationship that really grows and changes. But the reason he is, uh, the reason he bought her contract out and is now, like, now basically her indentured servitude is to his gang instead of to the brothel she had been sold to, Mm -hmm. um is because she is an incredible spy. She she was an acrobat who was kidnapped, um, and so she is able to scale walls and listen at windows and skulk around in the shadows like no one else, and he recognized that. Uh, and so he purchased her contract for his gang so that she could go be a spy for him, and it's a point of contention to some extent in the books where he will remind her that, like, yeah, the you know, he... He likes her and they care about each other, but also he needs her to go be a spy and she doesn't really have a choice. Interesting. Um, and it's, it is it is much more contentious uh, and then they have a lot of room to grow with that. So it's very interesting to hear your take on him as somebody who's trying to protect people. He also, he and... I, I don't see that very much with him and Jesper either. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, a, a really interesting difference then between the the TV show, which is, again, kind of their prequel 
and the books and the relationship they have in them. Right. Yeah, I think it's. I think it is definitely much more with Inej, and I, I think I'm glad that we get this version because he seems much like, to me, he feels much more relatable and believable in a kind of. I think part of why I generally like um, the, the the villains who think that they're heroes is they do feel. And I, you, have, you and I have had this debate before, and I think you you you, you remind me, and a couple other uh, listeners have reminded me that yeah, mustache twirlers do exist in our own world. Um, that's absolutely true. I, I tend to think that there's always some kind of a, a something that leads to that, uh, but that just can be like pure racism or whatever. But but the point being that I I, I find him a, a much more relatable character, and, and I'll get into why I, I particularly relate to him and some other reasons, and maybe that's coloring this. But but I uh, I guess the, I'm trying to put my finger on it because I definitely felt like I spent most of the show not quite sure how I felt about him, and. I think it may be part of why, like, we're both sort of, like, he feels like a very amorphous character in a way. And I think, in some ways, him being 17 helps to better explain that. Because I feel like, more than anything, he's a character who's finding himself in this show. In that, in some, like, there's a scene very early on where he suspects someone of using counterfeit money at the casino that he runs. And he gets Jesper to to figure it out using this great, um, I'm sorry, no, Jesper figures it out using this great sharpshooting trick that's a, a Real beautiful visual scene in the book, in the movie, TV show. Wow, it's it's late. <laughs> sorry, um, but I, I guess kind of the feeling is like it feels he's sort of like okay, I own this casino now, so this is the way I'm supposed to act. I'm this gang leader, so this is the way I'm supposed to act. And a lot of what his interactions with both of them is them kind of challenging him somewhat, and be like, well, but is that actually what you want to do? Uh, and again, this may be all my projecting because he feels very amorphous and not kind of defined that way. But that was, I think, the other the other reason why I'm kind of giving him some maybe some more rope is that it does feel like he doesn't really know what he wants to be. I think that so that's really interesting because I think in the book and obviously that very much colors my viewing of the show. Um, you are correct that a lot of it is like this is how a casino boss is supposed to act. He is, he is somebody who has built up basically a, a legend around himself as this extremely ruthless, brilliant, kind of evil gang member who will be absolutely ruthless and do anything he has to, to to win and to get what he wants. And it's very deliberate that he's made that his persona, so it is not fully exactly who he is. Mm-hmm. But he has also, to some extent, chosen that persona because that is who he wants to be because he feels like he has to for backstory reasons that I will not get into or spoil because they are not in the TV show. Um, But that's why I was really interested in talking about him in the context of the TV show because I was still bringing that reading of him as somebody who is very ruthless and single-minded when it comes to winning or, you know, getting his score through this job or whatever it is. Uh, And yet without the backstory, there's no sense of, why is he like this? What is this doing for him? Why is it important to him? And so I wondered how that came across in terms of like, yeah. why is he still likable and interesting if you don't actually have any idea what's motivating him to be right. such a jerk? And part of it is that he's also incredibly charming. I mean, I think that's 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 one of the things yeah, that, that yes. makes him pull it off. And it's that, but I think like as much as I did like the character, I'm glad that you asked the question because I think it's an interesting question of like, why do I like this guy so much? You know, because you're right. He's not a, maybe he's a hero. Maybe he's not. He, uh, he's just a straight up, like his, his goals. He's a criminal. He's a career criminal. (laughs) Um, and, and I think 
to me, I think there's another interesting story there that could be explored about him being um, like why he's a criminal and like what kind of life these people are, are led into. And now let me talk a bit I mean, about that. Okay. That's what the books are about. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to them. Then. Well, and um, so, by the way, also, whenever I do buy the books, I'll make sure to use whatever affiliate link you want to give me, because clearly you're going to get some money back from me buying the books. So I'll make sure you can get that. Uh, you, you would think. I, I, I do not. Uh, uh, you would think from the way I talk about them that, <laughs> that I get a penny back from Lee Bardugo's royalties every time one is sold. But no, no. They're yeah. just really good, and everyone should read them. And we are, I will say, this, uh, this podcast is going to try to start getting some affiliate links set up so that we can do that ourselves. Um, but we're not there yet. Uh, though uh, I will encourage other people to buy these as well as to buy the books by uh, Becky Allen, our guest at the moment, but we'll get to that in a bit. <laughs> we'll, we'll get into yeah. that later. <laughs> I, I see that for me, though, there are two particular reasons why Kaz definitely I did connect with a lot. Um, one is he's a ginger, which I am. Uh, always nice to see more of that on screen. But even more so, although he wears a hat quite a lot of the time, so you don't often, you can't often tell. Um, but even much more so, he walks for a good deal of the movie, of the show. You walk, yeah. During the show, he walks with a limp, and he uses a cane. And it's funny because the way the character, the way he carries himself, the cane is so often used as a focus of like him holding it menacingly, or him holding it as kind of a, a sign of status and a sign of power, that I almost kind of didn't notice that he's using it also as a mobility aid until later in the show. Uh, I, and I'm a disabled person, I've talked about it before. I, I sometimes use a cane, I sometimes use a wheelchair, and I often have people who comment, they don't know why I'm in a wheelchair, because when I'm using my prosthetic leg, I look, quote unquote, normal. Uh, you know, I'm making the finger quote noise. Uh, I look, quote unquote, normal. And and his story was one that I, I feel like because of that, I really identified with. And I also really liked that I've talked before about we have very little disability representation. And often when it is, especially in worlds with magic, it is of the... They were disabled, but then the magic cured them. Um, for example, I think knowing this idea of that being a Grisha makes you into sort of your perfect self, your most beautiful, your most wonderful image of your body. If there had been a disabled character who became a Grisha and then became healed, I probably would have stopped watching the show because that is just such a, and I've talked about it before, it's a very offensive trope and a very ableist trope, but it's one that we see again and again and again. The fact that they introduced the this topic, but through a character who's not a Grisha, I really loved. And then I did some research and I found that the author herself has uh, a mobility disability. Uh, I think it's a, a muscular degeneration in her case. And, and that she has said that she didn't intend it at first, but she started to realize that, that Kaz was becoming kind of a self-insert. And that what he, what he was going through, at least in the books and this on the TV show, was very much related to kind of her own experience of disability. Yep. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, there, there's not much to, to add to that. Yeah. Um, that it is, I mean, it is it really interesting in the books. He does often use the cane as a weapon. He gets into physical fights and he will beat the shit out of someone with his cane. Right. But he also, after he's been in physical fights, he also has a more pronounced limp because he's injured and he's not as focused on, can I make it look like I don't have a limp when I walk? Right. And there are a lot of times in the book where he is pushing himself and the book always remembers like, oh, he has, he, I, he has chronic pain and 
on times when he hasn't had enough rest or where he has been physically pushing himself, he is in a lot more pain and that's not something that goes away. It's just something he either grits his teeth and gets through because he has to, because he has a persona to maintain, or he goes back to somewhere very private and, you know, sleeps for 24 hours. Like, but he doesn't, he doesn't have a magical out. He is disabled and that's just his life. And he has turned the cane into something that gives him power uh, and he has uses the fact that he has a limp to often let people underestimate him Mm. which makes him more dangerous but he does not have a an option to not have pain he it just is his life and I'll say that part of the story especially, not the, um, you know, using my walking instrument to, to hurt people and have more power. Although I certainly try to make it look, you know, I have a very fancy looking cane that I want people to notice as like, damn, that man looks good with that cane instead of like, oh, you know, he looks disabled. But I def- that, that experience of often wanting people to not see me as disabled because I don't want all the pity and all the, the nonsense that goes along with it. But then having times when like, if I know I'm going to be using my leg for four or five hours, I know that at the end of it, I'm going to really be hurting and I will be limping more. And I don't, you know, I have to kind of take a bit, be aware of that. That's a very real story that I think a lot of disabled people go through. So I, I mostly wanted to highlight this because I think it is just such a good example of representation in a way that made me really appreciate the show even more. Is it possible that I'm looking at this like nefarious criminal who I think has a heart of gold because of this connection? I don't think so, but you know, anything's possible. So... I, I will say, I don't think he has a heart of gold, but I don't think his heart is as cold and dead inside as he would like it yeah, to be. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he's the heart of gold either, but I think it's definitely the, you know, like... Jesper might have a heart yeah. of gold. So let's talk about <laughs> Jesper. T- tell us about his character. Uh, I mean, Jesper in the show is is very, I think, dead on for Jesper in the books. Mm-hmm. He is a sharpshooter. Uh, he is kind of just there for a good time. He is, uh, unfortunately for him, he is addicted to gambling and he loses a lot and that is very bad for him um but yeah he's he's kind he's he is sort of the comic relief but not in a way where it ever feels too silly or totally inappropriate for a series about criminals Mm -hmm. he's not quite so so the book is called six of crows because there are six gang members and uh obviously three of them are are kaz inej and and jesper and i wouldn't say he's you know the heart of the group but he's not not the heart of the group there's just one other character who might also be um in some ways and then inej is in in other ways but yeah he's in some ways, he has the least compelling story because he, well, he does have a character arc, and I don't want to get into it, again, too much because uh-huh. it comes up in the books, and I don't want to spoil the very good books. Um, it's less dire in a lot of ways than uh, than Kaz or Anej. He is a guy who knows he has a problem with gambling, but is just not ready to deal with it yet, uh, who is able to be charming and kind of just do what needs to be done. And he's a criminal, but he feels kind of bad about it, but not that bad about it. Yeah. He, he's definitely the, um, like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I can in a hard situation. And, yeah, and, like, if his situation were better, he would probably not be a criminal. Yeah. And, and I appreciate, especially the way they handle, like, his gambling addiction is definitely there. It's funny, too, because, you know, I just did an episode on queer representation in 
uh, these kind of fantasy, sci-fi, superhero type worlds. And one of the things we talked about was that, you know, representation that plays into bad stereotypes is not the kind of thing we're looking for. Like that's actually can be harmful and problematic. And one of the stereotypes that is definitely out there is the kind of the, the gay man who will sleep with everything or the super over-sexualized, super, you know, promiscuous bisexual person. And it's funny because Jesper, like if you just looked at a character like sketch, you'd be like, oh, does it fit that stereotype? It doesn't at all though. It very much feels like this is, he is bisexual. He's very into to people. And he also is like, I mean, he, he's a hedonist more than anything, it seems like. And so, yeah, he yeah. he enjoys a quick tumble with someone. I think he would have been all about helping Zoya relax before the fight. But it never comes off. <laughs> she would have eaten him alive. Yeah, also true. And I think he would have loved every minute of it. Yes. But, but it never comes off in that kind of like, oh, of course, well, he's the queer one. So, of course, he can't keep it in his pants. Like, it just, it really feels like this is nothing about who, uh, his sexuality, it's just about who he is personally. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, he and Nina both, like, if you want to be technical about it, they, neither, so there's there's more sex on the show. I don't remember Jesper having, like, a, you know, a tumble with a guard he has to seduce to get past in, in the books anywhere. It does feel like something he would do, but there's not... Mm-hmm. Six of Crows is interesting because it's not really romance-driven. Um, Nina and Matthias have obviously are, like, the, the romantic couple, and then there's some... The relationship between Inej and Kaz is really interesting, and I, I don't want to spoil what it does, but it's not what you're expecting. Okay. Uh, cool. um, I, I will say, and, just and, from what I've seen so far, when you first learn that he's trying to buy her out of indentured servitude, I was like, please don't make this because he has a crush on her and he's trying to like buy her love. And the fact that they didn't go there made me really happy. Yeah, it's it it's not yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, I I will maybe I will spoil it for you when we're not on the yeah. air, but because I think I do think you will find them very interesting and compelling is with their relationship. Um, Jesper does have a, a romantic interest, which is wonderful in the books, but it's not what the books are about, and it's really not what his character is about. His arc is much more about what has driven him to be a hedonist and what are maybe some better choices he could make with those impulses? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the way we're describing it sounds very interesting to me because when I started the show, I did not feel like it was YA. I felt it was more like, it was by no means Game of Thrones in terms of like the level of blood or the level of gratuity. Like there's no nudity or anything like that. But it felt more like a show for all ages, not just, you know, and, and YA can be for all, like I loved Hunger Games as an adult. I, I think all ages can enjoy YA. But it it felt to me, I think some of the plot elements that felt very YA kind of surprised me because the show didn't come off as YA. So it does make sense that maybe they kind of like, you know, they added some scenes. And and, and frankly, like, if there's any kind of like gratuitous romance we're going to add, it's, you know, men being with men sexually. I'm okay with that. Like, that's a kind of representation that having some gratuitousness would not be the worst thing in the world. Yeah, um, I I agree with that. And I don't think... So, I mean, what it is is that Alina's books are very YA and Six of Crows is not. That makes a lot of sense. It it, it is still sold as YA. I think it's fine for YA, but it's definitely darker and I would say considerably more violent. Uh, Well, no, you know what? That's not even true. There is a war in Alina's books. People die. People get... People end up injured. People end up disabled. There's... There are very clear consequences to the war, but it's violent like a war, not violent like a street gang. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, whereas the Six of Crows, like they, 
they are a gang. Uh, and that's, you know, kind of what they do. So it is it is darker and it feels less YA. Mm-hmm. Um, while, while still being, you know, generally appropriate for a YA audience. So they did, they did I believe, add in that one sex scene, uh, Jasper, uh, Jasper's romance in the books. Like I said, it's not really the point of the books but it is there it is extremely cute it is queer it's super awesome. again i just recommend the books but it is um it his queerness is not in addition to the show he definitely is in the books he just i don't think has a casual hookup like that in the books although i could be misremembering well so let's get to inej now because i think in some ways she's the kind of most morally interesting character what what did you think of how she was presented in the tv show I thought it was pretty pretty dead on with with the books. I think if you liked the character in the show, you will really like the character in the books. Right. I, I, no, I, I, I let me rephrase the question. So, what did you think of the way the character was presented in terms of like, is she a villain? Where does she stand in all this? Um, I think, I think it is pretty clear. So, if you're gonna, you know, I don't even think she's like a villain with a heart of gold. She is somebody who does not want to be a villain. Right. She has been forced by circumstance and a need to survive into not just being willing, because I don't think it is very willing, but being able to be violent and being able to do things that she considers bad. But unlike Kaz or Jesper, she's not kidding herself about that. She knows they're bad. She does not want to be doing them, but she has no choice. And so she kind of is just accepted this is a thing I will have to do. I hope I am able to not do this eventually. I hope I am able to make up for this somehow. But these things are bad things. Yeah. I think that that makes a lot of sense. And it also really helps to connect to, like I mentioned at the beginning, this kind of what would seem to me kind of a hypocrisy of her saying, like, my religion forbids me to kill. So can you go kill this person for me? But in some ways, it does really make sense. And I think one of the critiques that's often brought against organized religion and i as a christian i think my own religion certainly has this in spades but it's sometimes the idea of like when you get into a place where you're more focused on the letter of the law than the spirit of the law and and i think that's a valid critique especially of hierarchy i think though that for people in very difficult circumstances where you do feel like you're having to compromise yourself all the time in ways that you don't want to drawing moral lines in the sand with a feeling of like, I just absolutely will not cross this, even though they might be kind of arbitrary, like they, I mean, and not killing isn't arbitrary, like it's a very distinct line. <laughs> but I, I feel like it, even if from the outside, it can look hypocritical and, and Jesper himself points that out. It makes total sense for the character, especially the way you just put it of like, there's just so much chaos around her and she's doing all these things she doesn't want to do that she needs some lines to feel like she has some control that there's something she won't get pushed to do. Yeah, and I think, do you from the show have a sense of what her backstory was? Because I know I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I, I don't know how much of it came through in the show. I, I think in the show it was mentioned that she was kidnapped. Um, I, I don't remember many details. I, I mostly remember that she had some great skill and people kind of captured her for that skill. One thing I thought was interesting is they keep her like she and a couple of other slaves who have interesting talents that are obviously useful, but not necessarily sexual in nature are all owned by a brothel. But my sense is that she was never used as a like non-consensual sex worker. Um, is that is that true to the books? Or is- your, your sense is your sense is incorrect. Okay. <laughs> um, so I. Again, this is, this is spoiling a little bit in the books, but it's like backstory that's very clear early on, right. so it's not like spoiling plot points. Um, 
So she was, so, you know, we had mentioned the different fantasy countries and races. So she is Suli, which is, my impression is roughly parallel to, I'm, I'm not sure if the, the proper noun for it is Roma or Romani, but she, but like that, rough, roughly that her family were part of a traveling act uh, that they, they didn't really have a homeland. They've faced a lot of discrimination in every country. Uh, and are frequently targeted for violence. Uh, and she had been kidnapped and sold to a brothel where she was an unwilling sex worker. Mm. But she still had all of these acrobatic skills right. that turned out to let her be a very good spy. And so when Kaz realized that he... Essentially, his gang put up the money to buy her contract. So now they own her contract and unlike the brothel, they will honor it when she has enough money to pay it off. So she she does have a, an eventual way out. And that's, you know, why she wants to be part of the screw and get this big score is because she wants the money to literally buy her freedom. Right. Uh, but that's why there, there's a moment, I think, somewhere in the show where I don't remember if it's Jesper or Kaz, but one of them says basically, you know, I, I'm not going to put her back in chains or like I'm not going to force her to go back to whatever. Uh, and it's... It's because she is somebody who has faced sexual violence and she was literally trafficked. Um, and so her her religion and clinging to that for her very much is part of, I want to be able to get out of these circumstances and be the person who believed in that, even though I have faced so much violence and I am so jaded now. Right. Uh, and I think that that's really fascinating. And again, I wasn't sure how much came through in the show. I think some of that does, but not necessarily the full extent of it. For sure. I think, I mean, knowing that it is a brothel specifically, I think it's certainly possible to assume that that's a part of her story. I thought, you know, I, I have such mixed feelings on, on like whether or not it should have been in the show, because frankly, like we recently did an episode on the TV show Warrior, which um, it, it does. I love the show for nine out of ten reasons. One of the things I think it's very bad at is the way it treats women, particularly because it does the thing that a lot of TV shows and movies do, which is is so awful, which is where they say, okay, we want you to know that these characters went through non-consensual, like, violent sexual encounters, and we're going to show it to you. And we're going to show it to you in ways that are meant to be upsetting and awful and clearly are but also are kind of like borderline titillating in really problematic ways. Like Game of Thrones did this all the time. And I sort of like, we've seen better examples of it, but I kind of have a feeling of like, I just don't trust TV and movies to show, like to, to show us that in, in, in ways that aren't going to be hardly problematic and broken. So like, I, would, I, I think that is an important development to her characters you're talking about. And I would hope that they like, in season two, like she gets to talk about it. But I'm really glad we never saw it, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, and I think, I mean, the the fact that the books are sold as YA to some extent, like, they're, it's it's never, like, in the books, and I know, you know, adaptations are not great about this, uh, but in the books it's never presented as titillating, and you don't really... Oh, for sure. Yeah. You don't really see it. There, are, she, she mentions one or two encounters, but it mostly focuses on how it made her feel, not on any of the physicality of right. it. Um. So, and and I think, I mean, some of it is that books can have more nuance, um, but I some of it is, you know, this is clearly something that Leigh Bardugo cares quite a bit of, about, and she had, 
I think it was, was an interview I read with her. I don't remember the source. But she talked about doing research uh, and talking to young women who are trafficked mm. and making sure that she was being very careful in her portrayals because this is not something you should write about lightly. Yeah. This, like, it's, it's an important and depressingly real thing. And so bringing it into a fantasy world is, is definitely a choice. But I think bringing it into this fantasy world that does spend a lot of time thinking about how people hold power over each other and what people will do to have autonomy from that power. I, I think it it does make sense within that context, right. and it is very well handled. That's good. And yeah, surely. I, I didn't mean that I thought the book would be titillating, but I mean, like, I, I mean, even the books of Games of Thrones, which are way over the top in a lot of ways, there are a number of scenes in the books that are nowhere near presented as at the way they are on TV, you know? And I think yeah. with other books that are less to, less exploitative like that, it, it happens as well. And, and hearing that from you, it definitely makes me think, yeah, we, the fact that there are now two, two characters where sexual violence was a part of their backstory that got left out d- does make me think, like, I, you know, I, it, it makes me worry that maybe they're kind of just afraid to get into that at all. And I'm glad they're taking care of it, but I do hope that they bring that story in, given how important it is to the, to the author. Taking, uh, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think yeah, yeah. in both cases it was kind of lightly hinted mm-hmm. at. Um, but in both cases, I also think it's something that becomes more evident with the character right. later on. And so I'm curious to see what they do with yeah. it in future seasons. And I'm curious if there's a second season that roughly follows the second book in the Alina trilogy, how they might bring the crows into it again. Because, <laughs> again, aside from Nina and Matthias... They, they, yeah. It, it's very clear in the books that, that Kaz and crew have never met Alina. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I don't really know how they might pull that back in. But I didn't know how they were going to do it in the first season either. And it was great. Yeah, so. We'll see. Um, so the last thing I want to ask about Inej then, actually there's two of those things. But one is, as we talk about it, the more it feels to me like in the show at least, her struggle of like, what are the terrible things that I have to do because of my lack of freedom and what terrible things am I willing to do in order to get my freedom? And what terrible things am I not willing to do? That in some ways her story is kind of a microcosm of what we're talking about for the Grisha themselves. Do you, did you see that at all in the show? I, we, we keep talking about the book, and I think maybe, maybe here let's just talk about it for the show itself. Uh, I don't think I would have put it that way, but I think it does make sense uh, as a parallel of what am I willing to do? What is it going to cost me? Right. Uh, how, what what will I do for this freedom? Because again, Alina, like I meant, you know, I mentioned uh, in the summary, is literally enslaved when they put the amplifier on her. She right. loses the ability to use her power herself. Only the Darkling can like touch her and then make her summon the sun, mm-hmm. and that's horrific. Yeah. I mean, the and so um, I think there is a lot that is not direct story, but is in the subtext there for her. And then to a, a lesser extent for Anej, because they don't get as into her story and to an even lesser extent for Jenya, because they don't get into her story at all. Right. But uh, of what does my autonomy has been taken from me. What am I willing to do to yeah. get it back? I, I mean, it's funny. I, I wanted to bring this up a while ago and we never got a chance. But when we talked about how Alina is kind of the, one of the closest to a hero one of the reasons I have trouble seeing her as a hero, and I don't know if this was just the TV writers not quite realizing what they were doing or if this is intentional, 
because I feel like she has a moment quite early on where she's quite willing to harm others in order to get what she thinks she needs, which is when we find out that Mal is going to have to go through the fold and she's not, and they're going to be separated. She wants a way to have to be basically sent with Mal to, to go on the fold. And so she, she basically winds up destroying the maps that they need because she's a cartographer in the hope that they'll assign her. And it winds up being that like her whole unit is assigned. And so she, but also some of the other cartographers are put in danger and some of them are killed. Um, now, granted, that was when exactly what she intended, but it seems like a pretty natural, like, a, a, a thing that could be pretty expected to be a course of her action is that she's trying to help her friend. And in doing so, she winds up putting the other people in her unit in, in very high levels of danger and getting some of them killed. I mean, also, those were strategic maps for the military. And also so true. I feel like <laughs> burning those is, when you're a member of that military is a bad thing to do because that has a huge potential to cost lives down the line, even if her immediate plan had gone off without a hitch. Right. So, and a military yeah, that was presented I, to us not as, I mean, like, no military is fantastic, but they weren't presented as, like, the evil military of the evil empire. We weren't like, yeah, kill all those troops. Yeah, no, they, they are, they're her friends. Yeah. <laughs> and as much as she has friends, which she doesn't really have that many except for Mal, but, like, they're her friends and they're Mal's friends, and she does inadvertently but not entirely unpredictably get a lot of people killed yeah. so yeah it's one more way she's kind of a it, it's all these same questions like what are you going to compromise and what are you going to think of and so the last thing i want to ask you is because i think for inej you know as i said one of the kind of controlling ideas of her is that she one of the central ideas of her character is that she will not kill until of course later and i mean it, it's chekhov's moral Come, it's Chekhov's moral, <laughs> Chekhov's moral quandary, moral quandary yeah. yeah. That she later is a situation where I think it's Je- uh, Jesper is going to die unless she ki- no. Um, she's fighting someone who makes clear that they will never stop. They'll never stop going after her. Uh, she either has to kill them or, um, you know, her and her friends will always be in danger. And so she does kill the person. Uh, it, it feels like they kind of set something up to be like. We're going to make it as easy as possible for Inej to cross that line because there is so little moral doubt as to whether or not she should do it. But I did still think it was pretty significant that that she was willing to cross that line. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think I so one of the things we haven't really talked about that much are the the different religions that are in this story because there aren't that many. And even though it's pretty central to Alina's story. There's never like, oh, like there's the the Apparat, who's the spiritual advisor, who's kind of the, the Rasputin, in as much as there is a Rasputin. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and he's, he's a pretty significant character in the books. And there's a lot of talk about saints, but there's never like, anyway, here is our organized religion and what we believe. There's just like, there, there are saints. They were all, you know, martyred. Right. That, that was sad. They had power. They were probably Grisha. Like, uh, and Inej definitely believes in saints and whatever this religion is, she is an active, right. uh, an actively religious person. Um, so I do think that it, yeah, you're right. It was set up to be an easy choice for her. Um, but I do think that it's interesting that she has sort of this edict against killing when that's not something that we hear anyone else. Yeah do or say and so part of me also feels like 
maybe it is somewhat religious, but maybe it's just she thinks she she knows killing is bad and she has done bad things and she has survived a lot of violence right. and she doesn't want to do that. And I wonder if that's part of it as well. I mean, that's why I brought up what I said about like that, you know, in this time of like feeling like she has to do all these things she doesn't want to do that. I, I can understand her wanting to draw some moral lines like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that that's I think that that's a, a good take. Yeah. I, I mean, in that I would I compare her to a character who, you know, I know is often one that people don't see morally as a good person necessarily, and and certainly we've had some reason to question things he does or doesn't do. But to me, I, that's always my take on Batman's lo- reason why he won't kill, because he's already in this like I'm having to do all these things that I don't think I should have to do because Gotham Police are falling apart, and and then we can get into like, well, why don't you just use your money to you know do social services that'll help keep away away from crime instead of beating up poor criminals. But that's a whole other story. But just in terms of why he draws that line and why she draws the line, I think there's a real similarity. I, I guess I I would not have thought of it like that. And to me, her line makes a lot more sense than his, Mm -hmm. um, because his line is, well, because as, as a vigilante, he is enacting so much violence And so much extrajudicial stuff that that doesn't that that is in any other situation, you'd be like, "Yeah, that's a bad person doing bad things." But it's to me, it's always come across as like, "Oh, but because he won't kill, it's okay that he's doing these other bad things," yeah. as opposed to something that his internal moral compass needed. Yeah. Whereas for her, it feels much more like she is literally in this situation it's not about a bigger mission for her it's not about you know oh i'll do all of these bad things and that's okay as long as it's an ends that justify the means but i just won't cross this one line it's much more i am in a situation where i have no control and no power and so i am trying to draw lines and trying to maintain whatever scrap of being what feels like a good person to me and it turns out i can't really do that and how how do i navigate that so i i see it as like it is i think from an outside perspective, similar, but to me, it does not feel like a similar d- position to be. Yeah, in. no, I, I think the only similarity is them having similar reasoning for wanting the lines, but but beyond that, you're right, the contexts of it are wildly different. Um, even if just if nothing else, like it, it seems that for the most part, she's willing to fight if she has to, but she's much she's a spy. She's not someone who's going out and fighting all the time. Whereas Batman, we just did an episode a, co- uh, a couple of episodes ago about Daredevil. One thing we talked a lot about was that the idea that you can engage in physical violence while also swearing to never kill is just biologically ridiculous. Like, it, yeah. it, you can like be having like a, a karate sparring match and there's a, a tiny chance, but a chance that you kick someone in just the wrong way and they break their neck or you do tr- massive head trauma. Like, people die from combat that is... Th- th- there's there's combat that has a lesser chance of lethality, but the idea of guaranteeing non-lethal combat is just ridiculous. Um, but putting that rant aside, but yeah, I, I just think it's, it, it's <laughs> one more, I think, just fascinating part of, of Inej's character. And and especially, like, I, the religion, like you said, we're not even going to be able to get into it here, but the way, like, her religion really becomes focused when she realizes Alina is the Sun Summoner, and she thinks, like, this is the, the, the thing my religion has been prophesying. You know, there's almost a kind of... I don't want to say messianic because that word has such very specific Christian connotations when really it should be understood in, in very different understandings that like it comes from from Jewish prophecy that's very different from the, the messianic ideas of Christ and all that. But it, it has that same kind of idea of like, you are the thing that my religion has been prophesying that will come to save us. 
Um, and I am really interested to see where her character goes with her religion in, in season two. Yeah, and I, and I do think that that's another thing that you should read the books about. because <laughs> I will read the books, I promise. <laughs> because it is, it is slanted differently in the books because of the different times when things take place and, and, and the different ways that things are set up. But it is one of the big themes through the book is that, um, especially in, in later books, but to some extent in the first, um, is that people really are looking at Alina as if she is a saint, and she is not. Yeah. And she does not feel like one, and she is very uncomfortable with the ways that people are trying to push this version of her onto her and are spreading, mm-hmm. you know, the, the this idea of her as a saint to people who are then counting on her to be a saint yeah. and she's not um and i think that that's a really interesting tension within her as a character that that sounds like it and it's especially given that as i said one of the themes that i saw through this whole show was this idea of like what happens when myth and legend meet reality you know and you get to see like the the, the actual person behind a myth or legend or or meet the kind the people that you've heard are all witches or all whatever it is so yeah i'll love to see how that plays out well there's been a great discussion we uh i think at first you were like well, we'll really have enough to talk about and uh clearly that was not a problem um you know it never is yeah. i should stop thinking that when, when we decide to <laughs> I, talk. I think this is true um so, but for, uh, hopefully folks are, uh, many of our listeners have probably heard you before and hopefully have already bought your stuff, but if they haven't, uh, where can people find uh, more of your thoughts, especially the, the published ones? <laughs> well, you can find uh, me on Twitter as a human. Um, I'm at allreb, A-L-L-R-E-B, um, and you can see my website, beckyallenbooks.com. It is not uh, updated very often because mostly I only do that on Twitter. Um, my books are a YA duology. Um, the first book is Bound by Blood and Sand. The sequel is Freed by Flame and Storm. Uh, they are from Delacorte Press, uh, and they are YA about a teenage girl who develops magic powers that maybe could save the world, <laughs> but maybe uh, the world is not super worth saving because of all of the violence that she's had to deal with. So, you know, themes. Uh, you know, these are good themes. <laughs> now, not to spoil anything, but is there a love triangle in your book? There is not. Yay! There is barely a love interest at all in my books. You know, it's funny because in some circumstances, I do. I don't. I love romance. I don't want. It, it is the love triangle specifically that I just feel burnt out on, especially because I think Hunger Games showed me such a better version of it. Of you know. And especially the one of, like, the woman just sighing, going, oh, should I have this guy or should I have that guy? And so the Hunger Games of just, like, nope, I'm going to use whichever guy I need at the moment. <laughs> it just was so refreshing to me. <laughs> Not to mention I'm polyamorous, I, and so every love triangle, I'm like, just all three of you date. Come on. You can work this out. Just date yeah. both of them. It's fine. Yeah, I I feel like, I mean, this is, this is getting off topic. I, I did do a panel about this at WizCon years ago at this point, but I, I feel like the, the YA love triangle became such a cliche for a while that there was a lot of, of backlash against it, and a lot of people were like, ugh, I hate right. that. And I don't think it's actually that loathsome. I think it can be really good and fun, and I think it can be a, a good way of exploring characters and what they really want mm-hmm. and, you know, who they all are. So I don't, I don't think love triangles are inherently bad but i also 
am not, at least as a writer, I'm not very interested in writing romance. I do read romance novels. Like, I read category romance. I, yeah. I enjoy them a lot. Uh, and I enjoy romantic plots in books when I read them, whether they are a love triangle or not. You know, some of them, not always, but... The upshot is that my books Oh, yeah, sorry, have, we're on that subject. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> my, my books have a protagonist and a male secondary protagonist, and they do have feelings for each other that they, for various reasons, do not particularly uh, acknowledge through most of the series. And at the end, they chastely hold hands. So, <laughs> sounds great. So uh, not, not a love triangle-driven YA. Uh, but... Uh, if you do want to read very good YA, again, I cannot tell you enough. Um, the Lee Bardugo books are so good. Uh, I think if you are not as interested in the Alina stuff, that's that's fair. You do not need to read the trilogy to read Six of Crows. Six of Crows is a perfectly good starting point, and everyone should read it because it's really great, and I need everybody's feelings about all of it, all the time, because they're really good. Uh, but the if you do like some of the more standard YA tropes, uh, Shadow and Bone is the first book in that series, and it is very definitely. good. I will definitely, I, I will make a promise to myself, I feel like I've got about 10, 11 months until the next season comes out, so I'll watch it before then, and then we can do something just on that, uh, just on the books to get ready for watching the, the next season. So, Becky, thank you so much, as always, for being a part of this. Uh, to our listeners, uh, a longer episode. Thank you so much for sticking around. Or, uh, <laughs> hopefully you had like a long drive because now you're uh, vaccinated and going out into the world a bit more and traveling to see people or just do work stuff or whatever. Or just, you know, over time at home, you're, you're listening to this episode. Uh, thanks for sticking around. Uh, as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts. We just did a feedback episode because we love getting your answers and, and responses and questions and things like that. Uh, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter at The Ethical Panda. You can also email us at theethicalpanda at gmail.com. And of course, you can go to our website, theethicalpanda.com. There you'll find information about this podcast, my other podcast, and all sorts of other great things that are going on. More recently, I've been going on to twitch.tv quite often. Um, I have in general been, by the time this is uh, published, I may have changed my schedule. So I'm, I'm not going to say anything about it here, but I'll put up announcements on my website and on my Facebook. But on the Twitch channel, I am both playing poker, learning the game of Potlim in Omaha and trying to get better with the help of uh, Paul Hoppy, who's often been my guest, but also uh, uh, he's, he's a very good poker player. He's been my mentor learning that game. But generally what I'm doing is I'm playing poker and I'm talking to you all about these kind of topics. We've done episodes on queer representation, on Loki and gender fluidity and all my issues about time travel. We've done one on Star Wars. It's been a lot of fun. People come to the chat. I talk back and forth. You can ask questions about poker, ask questions about uh, the stories I'm talking about. You can find that very easily by just going to twitch.tv and then searching for The Ethical Panda. Even if you've never been on there, it takes like two seconds to create a profile. Just hit uh, follow. It'll help me a lot. Help me get to 50 followers, which will have a lot more influence on where I am on search ranks and being able to actually um, bring in some revenue to help pay for all this. Uh, but also just hopefully give you one other opportunity to join in these conversations. So please check all that out. Definitely check out Becky's books. And more than anything, have a nice day.